Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, on Element FM, and you are listening in Toronto and Ottawa. On the show today, we have two guests. Uh, you may be familiar with Jane Philpott. She'll be coming up later on in the show, uh, around the bottom of the hour, and we look forward to getting her on the line and speaking with her about uh, her future ideas of what uh, she can present and and have come forward as an independent that she is now sitting at for the Markham-Stouffville area. And uh, we'll talk to her about that. And we also have coming up right after this, uh, after I finish speaking to you here about what's going on in the show, our guest is Zoe Leigh Hopkins, and she is a filmmaker and director. And uh, the film that we will be providing is predominantly speaking to her about is Kayak to Clem to, and uh, she will tell you all about that. And she is also a Mohawk language instructor, so she's fluent in the language. And I'm going to try and get some perspective on her uh, idea about how language uh, changes her perspective and, and worldview. Zoe, thanks for coming in today. Really appreciate you being here and taking time to uh, join us. No problem. Thanks for having me. You have a number of things that you do. You're, you work in film, you direct, you've written some, some film scripts and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. You also uh, are a language instructor, mm-hmm. a Mohawk language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of feel like my life and brain and body are divided in two. <laughs> um, and I wish there was two or three of me to do all the things that I do. Um, but yeah, I teach I teach language. I work for Ungawana Gunjokwa in Six Nations where I live. And I teach Mohawk language online. And I have a a fluctuating student body of anywhere between 40 and 100 students given you know, how many courses are currently running, it sort of like fluctuates um, depending on where students are at and kind of they kind of can just keep going at their own pace. So, um, yeah, and it runs all year long. So I, I uh, happy to be teaching courses through the summer and there's people um, who take the course uh, from different Mohawk communities and across the country and some international students as well. Um and the other part of me, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a writer, so I'm work, I'm writing on a, a television series right now, and I'm gearing up to make my next feature film. We're shooting here in Six Nations in September, and uh, I have my first feature film under my belt called Kayak to Clem 2. So that came out in theaters um, just over a year ago now. And, and it did fairly well, I understand. You got some yeah. awards for that film. Yeah, it's picked up a number of awards, and it did uh, pretty well in the theaters here in Ontario. In Toronto, it got four weeks at the Carlton, which was really exciting to see it get renewed week after week. Um, that's kind of tough for a little Canadian film to to do. So I was super thrilled about that when I was going to film school. I went to Ryerson. Mm. And so the Carlton Cinema is just down the road from Ryerson. Where I, and um, so, you know, that was the coolest movie theater in my little world because <laughs> um, it played, you know, a lot of um, art house films and just like sort of... Mm, cerebral films or, you know, the films that, the kind of films that I want to see, mm. you know. So for my film to open, uh, have its theatrical release at that theater was kind of uh, a dream come true. I yeah. was really stoked. Cool. Congratulations on that. Thanks. So, you know, um, you, you've mentioned quite a bit there already. Um, you went to Ryerson. Mm-hmm. What got you interested in film? Um, when I was 15, I was an extra in the movie Black Robe, which oh. is a period piece. It's set in 16th century Canada um, when some missionaries were here trying to, you know, do their missionary thing. And they were being guided by uh, the uh, uh, Algonquin tribe through, I don't know, different parts of, I forget where they were supposed mm-hmm. to be, but we were shot shooting in Shkutimi in Quebec. Um, so I worked on that for two months, uh, which is a pretty long stretch, you know, and I got to take two months off of school, which was grade, I don't know, 10 or 11, something <laughs> like that. So that was pretty fun mm. <laughs> just to go to set every day and have a tutor and, um, uh, wearing the leather and braids was kind of a trip, you know, mm. and I just, uh, I fell in love with the whole process and watching the machine of 
movie making at work, watching the director work, watching all the departments work together to build this world and build mm-hmm. this story and see how that happened, I was fascinated and I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. And one day, Ten Two Cardinal, who who played the chief's wife in that film, she um, was so lovely to everybody, but she looked at me one day and she was like, oh no, you have the bug. You're never getting out of this industry. <laughs> and uh, it's true. Mm-hmm. I have never left the industry. Mm-hmm. I've barely had any, you know, quote unquote, real jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's great that you're able to to uh, keep that alive and keep it going and make a living like you're saying, or at least part of your living through mm-hmm. through doing what you love to do, which is which is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing thing. You know, it's been a long time coming that I graduated from Ryerson in 1997. Mm-hmm. And my first feature film came out a year ago so almost 20 years or just over 20 years I'm not good at math (laughs) but you know uh, I've done so many great things I've got to making TV like I worked in TV for a while I've had the opportunity to travel the country you know Mm. to lots of different First Nations and work primarily with First Nations shows and um that's been great. I know a lot of people in the industry. In the industry, we're all a great little community, and internationally even. So, I, uh, I I wouldn't trade that. So, you know, I do I do work teaching. You know, to teach the language, and it's not only to supplement my you know sort of artistic income, but it's sort of something I feel is my responsibility as somebody who has had the opportunity and been blessed to pick up the language and become as proficient as I am, I feel it's my responsibility to share some of that knowledge. Mm. So I feel like even if I did, you know, make some Hollywood blockbuster stuff and not sort of need that income, that I would continue with that as best as I can. How would you say having uh, command of the the Mohawk language helps you in what you do in terms of bringing what you do to life on the screen? I think language speakers and carriers of the language, you know, my my worldview changed when I was taking the immersion course that I did. So at Ongawana Gunjokwa, where I work, uh, Ongawana Gunjokwa means our language um, community. There is a two-year adult immersion program, and I took that. Um, So it was two full-time years, September to May, um, full-time Monday to Friday, so it's a huge commitment. I think it that it amounts to 2,000 class hours or 3,000 class hours. I can't remember. But, you know, thousands of hours in the class, plus all the hours I put in at home making flashcards and videos and audio recordings for myself to help teach myself. Mm. Um, while taking that class and learning some of the things that are inherent in our language that give hints at our original way of thought, really has just that really transformed my worldview you know and I went into the course thinking you know oh I'll continue with this as long as my career and work hours permit Um, but in taking the class it became so important to me that my priorities shifted and did a 180 and I realized that like no I need to commit to doing this to the end and I love it so much um, so then work took the back seat so I you know I, I made it to the end and it was a really hard long haul but saying no to projects and contracts um, became a part of that reality and I never regret it saying no it was an honor to be there occupying a seat in that class and learning as best as I could and I feel very proud of the work that everybody does every year to graduate you know yet uh, you know a dozen more speakers it's pr- pretty fantastic mm-hmm. and and of course keeping the language alive is 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 vital mm-hmm. uh, it, it's interesting from the little bit that I know and and I've and I've seen and, and talked to people about in terms of language is the way that that uh, language uh, the syntax and, and, and how the thoughts form and, and how it relates to things, you know, so differently than we know in, in the English language. Yeah, it's really 
entirely different. You know, in English, we need to have a name for every object. You know, like there's, I hear my dad talk about it. My dad is the lead instructor, was the lead instructor, and he's hoping to, I hope he moves away from that now and gets to enjoy some other part of mm. parts of his life. But now that he's getting up there in years, um, and he's been at this for 20 years now. Um, but I've heard him say, you know, like we have a name in English for the little tip at the end of your shoelace, you know, mm. and I don't remember what that is, you know, <laughs> but, but we need to name everything. And in Mohawk, it's a language of verbs. So it's a language of relationships because you can't have a verb without a person being attached to it and a time. Mm. Um, and so each word in Ganyangeha in the Mohawk language refers to a person doing something in a period of time um, and space. So you can't just say, um, you know, you, we can nounify the word love, you know, but it doesn't really have any meaning unless you're saying you're that somebody is loving somebody, you know, mm. at some time. Mm. So somebody will say, you know, oh, how do you say such and such? And every a speaker will answer you who and when. Mm. And so... You know, you have to know who you're talking about and when that thing is happening. So, you know, like the word ujikwa mean is a noun. There are nouns in Ganyageha, but um, we don't learn them in the immersion class until the end of the first year. Mm. We, we just learn piles of verbs and how to conjugate them and um, learn how to th say things that you want to say. So the word ojikwa, which is a verb, a uh, noun rather, um, can mean so many things. Like it can mean a button or a key, like a key on a keyboard, mm. or it can mean a beet, like a root vegetable, mm. or it can mean hockey puck, or it can mean, wow. <laughs> it's almost like um, our word for like doohickey or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. but like it's just, that sort of learning that word and learning that it meant so many things and you have to like Un, you have to like have context around it f to supply the meaning um, made me realize just how unimportant nouns are because we're like oh here's this one word that can mean you know 10 different things mm. and it doesn't the word itself doesn't really matter it's the context behind behind that mm. uh, behind the word so context is everything in the language um, so it was really interesting to hear to learn about you know the unimportance the non-importance of nouns, you know, and the importance of relationships and how much, you know, our traditional worldview values our relationships with other people versus the English language and the importance of nouns and things, material world. You know, in just hearing that, that brief description, it, it brings to mind so many things. One um, is... is how I can I can now understand when you ask someone something to, to you know what how do you say this mm -hmm. um, why it takes such a long time for that to process and for people to come back with something that would make sense to you mm -hmm. in in the English language mm -hmm. because of what you just said the other thing uh, I think about is that is that I can really see how that would really transform your world view absolutely mm -hmm. yeah one of the first things I remember learning was uh, that changed my worldview was learning that there's no word for nothing you have to say that something is not something. So you negate something to have the concept of nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so otena means something, and ya means no. So ya otena means nothing. <laughs> um, so it's not, it, there's a lack of negativity there to mm -hmm. say that something is not something isn't, in English, isn't the same as nothing, you know? Yeah. In English, we have something or nothing, but in Kanyage, we have something and not something. <laughs> So it's like inherently less negative, you know. Yeah. And so if I always thought like in English, we have this dichotomy of like um, glass half full and glass half empty mm. people. Um, and you're of one of the you're of one of those two worldviews. But in Ganya Geha, there's not those two things. There's like there's something in it or there's not something in it, you know. <laughs> and that's just inherently a much more positive worldview. Mm. And I always imagine, like, what would it, the world be like if everybody had a positive mind? You have everybody was of a good mind. Mm -hmm. And that the, er the language holds within it the teaching to try to have a good mind, you mm -hmm. know. And that's a really beautiful thing. And it made me think back to when I tried to read um, 
Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Mm. <laughs> and on the first page, I couldn't get past the first page <laughs> because I was so troubled by the way he introduced the concept of nothing mm. and nothingness in space. Mm. And I couldn't get my mind around that. And I was so troubled. Like, yeah. what do you mean nothing? Right. Like, what do you mean there's so, there's a place where there's nothing? Yeah. I couldn't, I can't conceive of it. And like when I was in language class and learning about our our worldview and about how there's not really a word for it. We can express the concept of nothingness by saying there's not something, but um, it's different than saying an empty void. There's not a word for empty, you know? So I thought, you know, maybe in my DNA that there's just a, in our original way of thought, there's not a way to understand Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. <laughs> so maybe I had a cultural like um, uh, block at understanding that book. Well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> you say that because when you say cultural, I just think back to the original meetings of the Europeans and the indigenous people of North America mm-hmm. and them coming to explain, you know, the concepts that we all know that they brought over mm-hmm. uh, about land and about ownership and all those things. Yeah, And I can just imagine what they must have thought coming from a perspective of what you just described. It's just this alien worldview. Like, what do you mean owning it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can can get with how there would be a huge cultural divide between the original people and the newcomers, that, that there would be just an incomprehensible divide between one of those peoples looking at the other, not understanding at all. I would really like to have heard some of those conversations afterwards <laughs> no kidding like did you hear what they just said what <laughs> exactly that's right yeah we're talking with zoe hopkins on element fm and moment of truth we'll be right back after this and welcome back to moment of truth our guest is zoe hopkins we've been talking to her about a lot about language actually uh but zoe is also a filmmaker and she has her first uh, film under her her belt and it has done quite well a uh, Kayak to Clem to. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I you had a, a pretty interesting cast in that film. Yeah, I was so lucky. I got to work with Lorne Cardinal, mm-hmm. who is, you know, a, one of our nation's, like, funny man. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Uh, my son and I are, like, binge-watching Corner Gas right now, <laughs> and we guffaw at every episode. It's so hilarious. I, I'm, I can't believe I, like, missed out on it mm. until now, but I'm loving eating that up. I love that man so much, and he's mm. a friggin' joy to work with. He's a gentleman, mm. and um, his technical skills are, like, impeccable. I couldn't believe it. I had this one sequence where I was really nerding out on shooting um, – a scene with one t- one shot, you know, it was a long dialogue scene, mm. and normally you chop that up into different sizes of shots and singles. Everybody gets their angle mm. and whatever. And it was a move. I wanted to build it so that it was a long moving shot, and that that we would follow him because he was doing this like rant about hippies and environmentalists and got it, and getting to watch him rant. I just wanted to follow him on his rant. And so we orchestrated this like sort of complicated one-shot scene where we got just get to follow him. And he moved through this big space and he had to sort of spin on a dime and turn around. And it was really awesome to, in editing to be able to use any one of those takes. We did we did that we did that scene in two halves and they were like it was a long take on mm-hmm. both halves. And um so it had a cut point. Um and it was amazing to watch him spin on a dime on the same word and turn the same direction. And like every time, and it was 16 takes off either half. So 32 times, like he nailed it every yeah. time. It was editor's mm. dream, director's dream mm-hmm. to be able to choose right. any performance sure. that he he laid down because he was technically perfect. It was amazing. I, I loved working with him. And he was just a real team player to like pick stuff up and move around. But I also got to work with... Uh, Evan Adams, who yes. is our, one of our treasures also in in Indigenous cin- cinema, like try talking to anybody mm. who um, wouldn't see his face and go, hey, Victor. <laughs> and I was very pleased I never said that to him in real life. <laughs> you <laughs> just did. I, I, <laughs> not to his face. <laughs> I really was dying to, though. 
And um, he was also so generous and lovely. Mm. And um, the young Takaya Blaney, who was the lead and carried the movie. She's in almost every scene in the film. And she was um, 15, 16 years old. Yeah, 16 mm. years old when we shot it. And she's a real-life advocate for the oceans and our mm. environment and First Nations people and youth. And she's spoken before the UN a number of times on all of these issues. And she's like the real-life girl, you know. Mm. And so it was kind of a natural fit, and I was really – it was so great to work with her. She's going to be she's – a, she's a quadruple threat, you know. <laughs> like it's going to be interesting to see what she chooses to do because she, um, that girl can do anything. Mm. So you mentioned something about the characters. Uh, we've given the title, mm-hmm. uh, Kayak to Quentu, but we don't know anything. People may not know anything about the story. Right. So <laughs> okay, so it's available on all the streaming things, Great. you know, so you can watch it on Crave if you have Crave TV for free. Um, but you can also rent or buy it on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, and if you're in the States, you can... Um, watch it on Amazon Prime. Kayak to Klimtu is sort of my love story to the West Coast. I was born in Bella Bella. So I live here now in Six Nations in Mohawk Territory. I am also Heathsook. I was born in Bella Bella. It's a small fishing village on the coast of BC. Uh, it's on a little island, so there's no road access to get there. It's remote. Um, so Kayak to Klimtu is about a girl who um, convinces her family to travel with her by kayak to Klemtu, which is another remote community on an island on the coast of BC, not very far from Bella Bella, where I was born. And um, she travels there to participate and to to lay down testimony in a hearing against oil tanker traffic in her people's waters, which is something I witnessed in Bella Bella. I witnessed a, a hearing just like this that is portrayed in the film. And so she wants to travel the coast by kayak with her family so that she can see firsthand um, why it's so important to protect these waters and um, and to really lay down some authentic testimony about why um, we can't allow for this, this dangerous uh, traffic to be going through the waters. So it's sort of a family road movie on the water. Funny parts, dramatic parts, mm. and... Yeah, and uh, I really have been loving how young people have been embracing the story. So it's a, it's like a Kaita Klemtu is kind of like a social family film mm. and a family road movie, but on the water. And you shot it on the out there, yes? Yeah. So we filmed in every location that is portrayed in the film. We didn't do the entire journey by kayak or, you right. know, document. It wasn't a documentary, so we mm. didn't document this ragtag family going mm-hmm. up the coast for reals. But we did go to all of those places. So we did film um, a lot in the Tlaaman Nation mm. territory around Lund, BC, which is not far from Powell River. Mm. Um, and so a lot of, a bulk of the paddling scenes were shot in Desolation Sound, um, mm. which is Tla'aman Nation territory. And um, and then we went up to Telegraph Cove and um, uh, Fort Rupert, which is near Port Hardy. And from there we took a uh, flight to Bella Bella and we filmed in Bella Bella and then we took a boat and filmed in Clem too. All in all, we used 28 different boats <laughs> in the movie <laughs> to get get it on screen. So it was like definitely we were on the water almost every day. What are some of the challenges you faced in the filming and the technical end of things with, with a camera on a boat? I mean, yeah. it obviously always wants to move, does it not? Yeah, it was a physically grueling job for the entire crew um, and cast, too. Mm. You know, they were paddling a lot. But um, it was difficult to, you know, figure out how we were going to keep all the kayaks in line. You know, mm. these aren't professional kayakers. Sure. Um, they're just actors, <laughs> um, who, none of whom who had had really kayaked before. <laughs> so, you know, trying to figure out different ways to, like, keep everybody in line, you can't tell somebody to like, oh, just take one step to your left, you know, and mm-hmm. one, oh, take two steps back, or mm-hmm. you, you know. So sure. that was that was a little tricky. We kind of had to like be the people. We had to move the camera where we needed things to be lined up, and and you know, in the end, they were fantastic kayakers. By the end, you know, um, 
But that was challenging. And then figuring out different ways to shoot scenes, so different ways to use the camera so that all the shots didn't look the same, you know. So shooting on different types of boats, shooting on different types of mounts, um, shooting with the cameraman in the water, shooting with the cameraman sitting in the kayak facing backwards with the camera in his lap. Vince the uh, Vince Arvidsson is the director of photography, and he's just a machine. <laughs> you know, like he was, he's a joy to work with. I worked with him on a short film um, that Takaya Blaney is in uh, when Takaya was only nine years old, and mm. I kind of earmarked the both of them that I wanted to work with both of them again one day, and mm. it was on this film. So uh, yeah, cameras on water with a kid as the lead, and trying to document wildlife. You know, like those are all the things you're not supposed to do, and I did them all in my first feature film. <laughs> it was it was tough. It was mm. really hard. And at the end of the day, I'm amazed that we have any movie at all because it was so, 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 so hard um, on, you know, on a scale of filmmaking difficulty on a low budget film. Mm. I would say this is like way, way up there. If it's on a scale of 10, maybe we've got a nine. <laughs> Great, congratulations! So, and technically, what kind of uh, what kind of um, film? Film was it? Uh, um, did you shoot on film, or what did you? Uh, no, this is. Uh, I'm fully into the digital world now. I used right. to be like a film filmmaker who only made films on mm. film, sixteen millimeter or, mm-hmm. or super sixteen, um, back in the day. Um, but my two sh- first short films were shot on, on super sixteen. Mm. Um, but this is shot on on digital on the red camera. So oh, yeah. um, so we had two camera bodies and water bags and yeah, boats and stuff. <laughs> you entered it in many festivals, mm-hmm. and uh, and it did it did quite well. You got some recognition. Yeah. So it premiered at the Imaginative Film Festival in Toronto, mm-hmm. which is sort of my home festival. It's my favorite film festival because it's. Uh, a festival of <clears throat> international indigenous peoples. So people from Norway and Sweden and Finland and Russia, the, the Sami people of the above the Arctic Circle, you know, those indigenous people come and that's amazing it's amazing to watch them and their culture and their mm-hmm. expression of their culture in their films. And Australian and New Zealand peoples and other Pacific nation peoples. Um Hawaiian and all across America and Canada. So it's awesome to know all of those people and we're all connected now and I have friends flung far flung across the globe from just from that festival and they've supported so much of my work. So that's always in October if if uh, listeners have a chance to check it out. It's a really worthwhile festival to watch every single one of the films that are in there. They're beautiful. Um, and from there, uh, it, it won the Audience Award at Imaginative, which I think is the best award to win at any <laughs> festival. It's not decided by juries, mm. you know, it's just decided by the mm-hmm. audience. Yeah. And so this is one of those films where it's sort of an audience, become an audience favorite. It's been, it's won n- numerous audience awards at various festivals. And, um, but it was rejected at all the big, you know, Film in film world mm. festivals, but I think that's because you can't be a f- a programmer sitting in your room watching a film this film on your computer alone. I think it's one of those films where you need to be in a room full of people who are embracing it and mm. laughing and mm. crying. You know, every single screening I've been to, there's been raucous laughter mm. and so many tears mm. and people getting up and hugging me and thanking me mm. with just sobbing, mm. you know, and but they also laughed throughout. Mm-hmm. And so it's shocking to me on one hand that it would get rejected from anywhere when people mm. love it so much. Mm. Um, but it's also clear to me that it's a movie for the people, you know, not for fancy film festivals, you know. So I really was pleased to take it back to all the places where we filmed and do a little coastal tour. So it showed in the big house in Clem 2, mm-hmm. and it showed in the Elders Building in Bella Bella, and it showed in Fort um, in in Fort Rupert, and it showed in Tla Amun Nation in their gym. So it got to go back mm, home, mm. and um, those were some of my favorite screenings as well. Mm. It's nice to win prizes and awards and trophies and plaques and whatever. Mm. I have a lovely little collection of those <laughs> now from this film, and I'm so honored. But there was nothing like bringing it home. Well, that's uh, that's great. Again, once again, congratulations. And I, I obviously sounds like it was well received when you presented it back there in those communities. Yeah, absolutely. The the 
the people in Klim Tu were really, it was so awesome to see the big house full mm. of people watching mm. it and watching them cry and mm. watching them laugh. Like, I was just like, okay, I can just be done now. <laughs> Everything else is gravy. I brought it home to its namesake. And they thanked me and they said, you've made us proud, you know, and that's kind of all I ever would have wanted to do. Yeah. And they thanked me for bringing it there first on our coastal tour for recognizing that the importance of doing that and um oh i was gifted with so many things and it's just that was just this huge gift as a filmmaker to be um embraced at home yeah you know? and, and it sounds like uh it did what you hoped it would do in terms of uh, what you were bringing to life and, and yeah you know i think it's it, it's environmental message is pretty strong um and i think making a social film like that i think you know I'm I'm not an activist in terms of the I'm not an activist filmmaker I mm. mean but it definitely has a strong environmental message and fits mm-hmm. in with a lot of activist films in that regard but um you know I'm not going to change anybody's minds I don't think with this mm. film but I think that what it can do because it's a family film is plant seeds mm. you know amongst mm. the young people and kids who don't have a political opinion yet you know but they can see the beauty of our nation and the importance of our peoples mm. and maintaining the beauty of our waters and safety for for everybody it's not just a first nations issue it's a planetary issue the mm. oceans are a global concern so Watching it resonate with young people is so mm-hmm. awesome. You know, if that message is getting out to people who are going to be our leaders um, and taking on our horrible environmental climate crisis, then I'm so happy that young people are getting a chance to see it. I'm glad you said climate crisis because I think that's that's what we are in now. Yeah. It's not a climate change anymore. No, it's a climate crisis. It is. Now. It's an emergency. Yeah. In last month, or not last month, in April, we had National Canadian Film Day, and Real Canada is an organization organization that gets some um, films out to young people and and um, schools and new Canadians and um, shows them the best of our Canadian films. So on that day, um, I got to participate in a live webcast that went out to um, over 200 schools across the country from way up north, like Rankin Inlet area, mm-hmm. to from to coast to coast. And they all watched me and Adam McGoyan talk about our respective films. And so they had, all these students had watched our films that, they, that we were talking about. And so... 17,000 kids had seen Kayak to Klim oh, wow. from coast to coast nice. up to the north. And I got like lovely tweets and letters <laughs> and stuff with kids responding to it and lovely questions. And so I, I just I was so floored by that yeah. by that number of kids having seen it. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe this story of the distribution of this movie keeps getting better. But it does. Well, congratulations, and wow, it, it, you should be very proud of, of what you've done. I am super proud. I'm super proud. Yeah. And I just feel really blessed and mm. honored to have had that opportunity. So uh, we're going to we're gonna end fairly soon, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to, you mentioned TV. You're working on some TV, and I'm mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. wondering what you got planned for the future. I got to participate in my first ever TV show, Writer's Room, big, you know, <laughs> opportunity uh, to write on Eden, on the show a show called The Trickster, which mm. CBC is um, producing. Mm-hmm. And it's um, based on Eden Robinson's novels, um, uh, Son of a Trickster, Trickster Drift, and um, the third yet-to-be-released mm. book. And uh, that was kind of a dream come true. Mm. I l- loved that book so much when mm. I first read them. So I r- just handed in my episode the other day, mm. so I'm stoked about that. And... Uh, in September, we'll start shooting my next feature film, which is called Running Home, uh, here in Six Nations. Great. And when might you have that completed? Uh, usually it takes about a year, mm. usually, you know, for editing and all the magic to happen. Mm. Um, and it'll do a festival run before it does, hopefully, a theatrical run. Um, but, you know, I used to think that the, th- uh, having a theatrical run was the be-all, end-all. But now I've had so many beautiful experiences mm. that aren't a part of a theatrical run that um, I'm like, oh, that's just a part of it, mm. you know. So uh, I'm excited for whatever life it has mm. afterwards. Mm. Um, yeah. 
And, and you know, you, you mentioned uh, getting into festivals, getting a, a film into a festival or, mm-hmm. or those kind of things. What is the process for that? Is that is that a lot of work for you to do, or does someone else have to nominate that, or can you just put it in, or how's that Yeah, and then in the early days, like making short films, that was definitely all me, mm-hmm. you know, submitting, mailing away. And that was like in the, in the days where we had to mail away right. a, a VHS <laughs> and uh, <laughs> submit it and cross your fingers mm-hmm. and send your little $50 check or whatever mm, to, mm. to submit. You know, some of them have a, a high um, a submission fee. Mm. Um, and then you just wait in here and get a, a letter. Mm. Um, but now it's all online. Mm. <laughs> so it's a lot less work. But I'm sort of uh, lucky now that there's a team who usually does that oh, kind yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, maybe at most of what I'll do is like say, hey, can we submit to this festival? You know, if the team doesn't really know about mm-hmm. some festivals that I do where I'd love to be a part of. But maybe, you know, everybody knows about, you know, TIFF and Khan mm-hmm. and um, Sundance and all of that in the film world. But like these little, some of these little indigenous film festivals like uh, that are close to my heart, but mm-hmm. not, you know, fancy in terms of film world like mm. i love being part of those for mm. our for our people and our mm. communities to mm-hmm. see my work that i make it for them not sure. for fancy hollywood yeah. people uh, and speaking of smaller festivals and things you mm-hmm. just uh, you were just uh, you just put something up either on facebook or tweeted mm-hmm. something about uh, uh, Clem to once again which you just yeah. were recognized for yeah my film won best feature at the Lumbee film festival in north carolina so it's their second annual festival and i think it's it's two days long so i think that's pretty small for mm. a tiny little festival but i'm so so pleased you mm. know to be honored with that and they tried to get me to come down there but i couldn't mm. i had a family thing out west so i couldn't mm. go but like those festivals are so important you know and mm. so awesome and so i'm just i'm so pleased they sent me a little plaque <laughs> and t-shirt and stuff it's just nice. it's so nice like a year after it's was released in theater it's still picking up yeah. prizes so congratulations once again. Thank you. So it's been wonderful speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. So and I really much. appreciate, you know, not only you sharing about your film and what you're doing and what you're, you're getting into and, and what we can expect in the future, but also sharing about the language and how important that is to you and how important it is to continue the, the language, keep it going and keep it growing. Yeah, it's thank you. I'm honored to be able to talk about all of that. I, I hate talking about myself, so it's nice to talk about <laughs> something that's important. <laughs> We've been speaking with Zoe Hopkins, as you heard, a filmmaker and also language instructor. And it's been a pleasure having you here today, Zoe. Yeah. Yeah. And Scanosego, welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa, 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And also, as we mentioned at the top of the hour, you could be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. If you download that app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, and you can listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country. On the line from Ottawa right now, we have the Honorable Jane Philpot, And I'd like to say good morning and welcome to the show, Jane. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure you're you're busy, but perhaps that busyness has changed uh, in, a, in the last few months. I, I guess uh, things since since uh, everything erupted, and and you're now an independent. Well, definitely the pace and the specific activities have changed. I'm no less busy these days, <laughs> uh, just in a little bit different way, uh, but still really happy to be able to advocate on behalf of the important issues that matter for Canadians. Mm. And uh, just to, to recap, uh, the Honourable Jane Philpott uh, was first elected as a Member of Parliament in October of 2015, and she has sat uh, in numerous cabinet positions with the Liberal Party, Minister of Health, Minister of Indigenous Services, the President of the Treasury Board, and the Minister of Digital Government. What is that exactly? Well, that was a really interesting file, which uh, goes along with the President of the Treasury Board role. But, you know, there is an increasing need for digital services for Canadians mm. when they're interacting with the federal government. And so uh, it was a new position that was started, um, I believe, in 2016 or 2017 when Scott Bryson when it was Minister of Treasury Board. It was added to his portfolio. I 
I was happy to take it on. I think there's much more work to be done in that area. Um, and hopefully the my successor will uh, manage to really move things ahead because uh, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that government is open and accessible. If you don't mind me saying, you know, in, in some of these listings of, of what you've served as, specifically as a Minister of Indigenous Services, and you just mentioned portfolio, um, I can't help but think that a, that a portfolio like uh, Indigenous Services uh, is different or has to be different from other portfolios. One, because it's, it's, it's a portfolio, but it deals with real people. It deals with people's lives. And I'm just wondering, you know, how how a person gets gets put into a portfolio and how it can or cannot be treated, how you how you go about incorporating something like that to take it on when it is dealing with uh, so many things that we know about uh, dealing with indigenous people. Well, you're absolutely right. It's an, it is a very important portfolio. And in a world where, of course, the ultimate uh, uh, desire is that uh, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis uh, will be able to fully exercise their right to self-determination, then hopefully there won't be a need for a federal portfolio on Indigenous services. But given the relationship that the federal government currently has with Indigenous peoples and uh, the uh, work around education and health, etc., it is a necessary uh, period of time to have someone in that role. I had already been involved to a certain extent when I was Minister of Health. The First Nations Inuit Health Branch uh, fell under my uh, responsibilities and so I'd had some opportunity at that point to understand the huge uh, needs and, and challenges that uh, were being faced to be able to get high-quality, accessible health care uh, that uh, First Nations and Inuit would have access to and would meet the, the uh, needs and expectations. Uh, but then when I took on Indigenous Services, uh, which was a new create, a portfolio that was created, um, I had added responsibility for things like infrastructure and education. And there's, there's a tremendous amount to do, but there's also uh, a, a whole range of people who are willing to help and give ideas. And I spent a lot of time in that role uh, listening to First Nations Inuit and Métis leaders about what they wanted me to do so that I would be sure my priorities were in keeping with uh, what they felt was were necessary. Now, just on that, I don't want to stay on this too much longer. I would like to move on and talk about uh, what you're doing now and moving things forward. But I'm just wondering, you, you're a physician, you're a doctor, and you're not the first uh, uh, MP that, that has, has been a doctor, moved into politics, and actually had the, uh, the role of, of Indigenous services. When you see the issues facing, and you know more and more, especially with the, the report that has just come out with the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, as a physician, someone that cares for people, someone that, that is there to, to help and try to improve people's lives, uh, how does, does, that, does that have play any role in your, in your psyche as you, as you take on something like that? Well, I think having the background as a physician was really helpful in terms of understanding the issues and what what work had to be done and to be able to put pressure on in certain areas. So one of the best examples I have on that is just the very... Um, uh, difficult situation in terms of tuberculosis, particularly amongst Inuit. And um, when I realized uh, that the rates of tuberculosis amongst Inuit in Nunangat are over 300 times higher than the rates for the non-Indigenous Canadian-born population, and no one had actually really, you know, put their heart and soul into trying to address this, I had the opportunity to work alongside Natan Obed, who's the president of the Inuit Tepirit Kanatami, and we. Uh, we put together a task force, made a, a declaration uh, with the federal government and the ITK to say we have to be able to uh, eliminate tuberculosis in Nunangat by 2030. It's very doable if people will put their minds to it because it's it's appalling that we should have rates that are higher than you know most developing countries amongst uh, a. a the Inuit in Canada. So um, these are things that I understood as a physician that the, that it's absolutely, there's no scientific reason why uh, tuberculosis shouldn't be eliminated. It was the lack of political will uh, mm. to that point. So um, I think that was helpful in that role. And obviously, uh, I'm very hopeful that those who are still in the role will, will really continue to push for that. Mm. 
So you're now sitting as an independent for the Markham Stouffville uh, riding, and that's a sort of north northeast uh, Toronto area. Um, you're mm-hmm. running in this uh, coming up election as an independent. And, and one of the things from your website, you're looking for a stronger democracy, you're saying. And, and I remember, I, I believe you said something to this effect uh, earlier in another interview about, about uh, how independents serve a larger role in other parts of the country and other, uh, other countries that have more independent representation. Yeah, so it's a really interesting um, thing that I have discovered since I found myself in this position where I felt that, you know, despite everything that had happened, uh, the people of Markham Stovall, many of them expressed that they would still like me to be their member of parliament, and I uh, was uh, booted out of the Liberal caucus and told I couldn't run again as a Liberal. But, Mm. you know, I thought if the people of Markham Stovall still want me to be their member of parliament, then I need to find a way to make that happen. And so one of the options was to run as an independent, which is not commonly done in Canada, or at least people don't commonly do it successfully. But I started to look around the world and learn that countries like Ireland, for example, have 18 independent members of parliament, and they are very actively involved in in policy, in uh, often supporting the government or supporting the opposition. But it means that you've got members of parliament there that actually represent their uh, constituents in a way that all members are supposed to do. But when you have obligations to a party, then sometimes your your loyalties to your party may have to override uh, your loyalties to your constituents. So I think it's something that Canadians have an appetite for. We'll see what happens in October. I know I have <laughs> I have a lot of hard work on my hands, and many think that it's an impossible task. But I'm prepared to do the hard work. And if the people of Markham Stouffville uh, support me, then I think we can start talking more about how uh, we can make sure we. Uh, represent our constituents well and that that parties don't overtake the important uh, responsibility that members of parliament have uh, to represent the people that sent them to Ottawa. But, but in many ways that kind of has already happened, hasn't it? I mean, I mean um, when, it, when you're sworn in as, in, in as an MP of a party and you take an oath, is that oath to the party or is it to serving the, your constituents and serving the, the country to the best of your ability? Well, your obligation is to serve your constituents, absolutely. But for a variety of reasons, over the recent decades, there's increasingly been um, power that's been given to parties to, you know, approve uh, candidates, for example, um, and then political staff often are the ones who are sort of telling members of parliament what to say and how to vote. So uh, it doesn't have to be that way. The Constitution wasn't designed that way. Uh, members of parliament have a responsibility, actually, to hold the government to account. That's what the legislative branch is there for, to hold the executive branch to account. But somehow it's it's slipped that, uh, that that is not so clear. And I hope that some of the conversation we've had in recent months will really help Canadians and help all members of Parliament find ways that we can work together. And, I mean, you know, this is, this is about representing our constituents, but it's also about solving the big problems and big challenges of our day. And if it, it you know, when party structure gets too powerful, then it becomes a very combative oppositional place in in Parliament, whereas I believe that what it will take for us to move forward on on climate action, on um, recognizing Indigenous rights, on democratic reform requires uh, the voices of people who are sent to Ottawa by their constituents but are willing to collaborate with with members of all parties, and uh, that's what I hope to do. You know, I think that uh, in some of the some of the the, uh, the information that you have on your website about um, you know stronger democracy and running as an independent, you talk about some of the dysfunction in Ottawa. You talk about some of the some of the waste. Uh, you talk about question period, for instance, and and it goes back to what you were just I think referencing referencing there, and um, you know it 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 really makes you wonder. Uh, about the waste, you know, the, the ongoing waste that, that seems to be, as you point out, for political uh, uh, points, and it gets nothing done, it accomplishes nothing for the general public, and it seems like parties are there wanting just to represent themselves and try to, you know, make sure they get re-elected, uh, and, and the, the, the Canadian general public is, is, you know, footing the bill for all this. Yeah, and you know, I don't want to imply that uh, uh, that there aren't 
thousands of hardworking people in Ottawa, and I think all members of Parliament come to Ottawa with the very best of intentions and really want to be here to work hard uh, for the people they represent and for the country. But over time, the place has become less and less functional because of the um, combative atmosphere that's developed Mm. in the House of Commons. Mm. And so, you know, question period, which is intended to be a time to hold government to account where where there can be genuine, authentic questions and answers coming back and forth um, is, you know, I think you can ask most people who go to watch it and as to whether they feel something has actually been accomplished during that hour, and and many would have their doubts. But, you know, we have such, we are at a, a critical time for our nation and for our planet uh, in terms of the work that needs to be done to, as I say, address climate action, build a renewable energy economy, um, to, to have hundreds of members of parliament and, and thousands of public servants in this country who um, are not focused entirely on facing the most uh, serious uh, threats facing us as a nation um, is 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 not responsible. So I I hope that uh, we can have a conversation about how to make this place work better, how we can get all party collaboration on these big issues, and I think some of that is happening to a certain extent, but hopefully more and more so. Uh, those of us who come back here in October, if I have the privilege of being one of them, um, my goal will be to to work with members of all parties to to really get some serious work done and to try to make this place as functional as it possibly can be. Mm. Um, now, with that, um, you say uh, as a represent- representative, if re-elected, you're going to speak up for your constituents, you're going to speak the truth, and you will, as you just mentioned, you're willing to work with other members of parliament, regardless of their party and affiliation, uh, to focus on improving lives in the community and the country. Um, do you believe as an independent that 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 other party members will want to work with an independent? I believe so, for sure. In fact, I've already seen evidence of that, and that's been one of the most positive things that's happened over the last couple of months. Now that I'm uh, not part of the Liberal caucus, I've had much more opportunity to meet people from other parties and still, of course, to engage with with really uh, collaborative members of the Liberal caucus. But, you know, I'm sitting in the House now beside Elizabeth May, leader of the Green Party. She's mm. happy to work with anybody <laughs> who, who shares a common vision. So um, so we've had a great time working together. But I've also had great conversations with, uh, as I say, Liberals, New Democrats, Conservatives, um, to sort of say, let's get together and work on these big issues uh, in a way uh, that will be positive and show those who are more worried about their party than about getting things done that in fact that's you know we need to we need to turn that on its head and say there are a bunch of members of parliament whose top priority is improving this country and improving the lives of people in their community and and it's not about gaining or retaining power it's actually about doing the hard work um and getting those commitments uh, uh for Canadians so you know i think it's uh it it's going to take some remodeling but i absolutely believe that it's possible based on on the goodwill of of uh, many people who who want to uh see that their, their time in ottawa is used well. Jane, I want to say uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I wish we had more time, but we're out of time at this point. And uh, I just want to wish you all the best in the future. uh, And I hope that uh, things uh, roll out well. I know that uh, people in your riding are looking forward to having you there. So all the best. And uh, we look forward to maybe speaking with you again on the show. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Take care. Okay, bye for now. I also want to say nyawa miigwech wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa miigwech and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.